Welcome to another episode of Zero Ambitions, a podcast about sustainability, the built environment, and zero carbon goals. So this week, we've got a two-parter for you. At first, we thought we'd do an episode in response to that Times article that was doing the rounds last week. Uh, what was it called? EPCs are a national scandal, something like that. There's a link in the show notes. Anyway, we did. It just didn't turn out quite like we expected. At first, it was just going to be me, Jeff, and Alex. And at the last minute, Jeff suggested we ask Bill Bordas and Adrian Lehman if they'd like to join us. Jeff remembered that when he first encountered them, they were deeply involved in the subjective energy performance assessment. So, yeah, we asked them if they might be free. And they were. So we were delighted. And the guys were really generous with their time, hence it being two parts. In the end, we spent about half our time together, the first part, looking into the past and the other half, looking at how we might do better in the future. So past first, Bill regaled us with a a tale of what EPCs might have been, how they came to be what they are and where it all went wrong. The episode has a particular UK focus, but the themes are universal. I mean... There are a lot of lessons that we can learn from the tension between modelling and estimation and the reality of how buildings perform when they're actually being used. It's rarely the same. Anyway, um, we started with a bit of chit-chat. So if you want to just get to the episode proper, it's about seven or eight minutes in, you can jump ahead. But you might miss Adrian's story about his energy efficiency tour behind the Iron Curtain and the Albanian defectors. It's only a short one. We enjoyed it. What will you do too? I'll just say the toxic positivity stuff up front. Please rate the show. Five stars, please. Makes a difference. Please share it if you're enjoying it. You probably know someone else who might enjoy it as well. Um, join ACAN, ACB, subscribe Passivast Plus, advertise if you can, if it's relevant to you, or the usual stuff. Do better. All right. Um, enjoy. Cheers. I don't have my fancy microphone. I, I can nip upstairs to get it. We're in the middle of it, aren't we? So No, it's fine. You sound all right today, Jeff. You could be clearer. But, uh, I mean, we could say the same in most occasions anyway. Yeah. Uh, Adrian. Up a bit more. <laughs> yeah, hi. Hello. Jeff, yeah. thank you so much for agreeing to uh, that photograph. I, I was asked to do a piece for uh, these Friends of the Dales on Passive House. Yeah. Uh, uh, with twelve hours notice, just about. I'm sorry, I didn't. Um, I know you'd you'd asked me beforehand for help, and um, and I am so swamped that I that I just I I didn't have the time. Good. You're looking for assistance with content for the article itself, aren't you? Um, well, I hoped you I hoped you'd be swamped. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> if you weren't, if you weren't, you're being wasted. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a successful swamp, I can assure you. Um, no, it's grand. It's, it's it's an interesting time, you know. It is. I don't know if you, if if you um, gentlemen get involved in the the whole kind of um, uh, digital swamp or soup that is uh, social media uh, at all. But the, the discourse, Jeff. Yeah, it's it's extraordinary. It's actually quite hard for me to process seeing so many people coming into our sort of sector now. You know, it's great. Um, it's kind of terrifying. I mean, it's, um, uh, it's hard. It's so hard to keep up with everything, frankly. You know, there's just so much 
chatter and hubbub. But I can't complain, I suppose, because, you know, well, I will. I'll, I'll complain about everything, you know. Complain when there wasn't, when people weren't showing enough interest. And now, now that they are, I don't like that either. <laughs> well, you should become a, a TikTok influencer. Oh, God. That's what, <laughs> that's what I'm considering. Um, I'm selling uh, vitamin C serum, I, I thought. Um, we may have more influence on the world than we've had over the last 30 years banging away at this subject. Well, Jeff and I, when we started out, I think in our second or third issue, we had a a very enthusiastic party get involved with us and advertise his seaweed uh, tablets, (laughs) which were an early sort of nootropic style supplement, you know, very much in the vein of snake oil. With a degree of truth, I believe, you know. I don't know. The reason I was complete, we were completely green to all of this at the time. Um, and uh, the magazine wasn't just, I mean, it was mainly sustainable building. But yeah, it, but it's easy to get sucked into uh, stuff of kind of quest- questionable, uh, you know, w- with, a, with a lack of an evidence base, you know, I guess. Um, oh, he was a very enthusiastic party. He was incredibly supportive of our endeavour. Yeah, like he, he, he wanted was... us to call it Renew Ireland. Yeah, um, and he wanted us to focus more on on re- you know, sustainability and, and renewals rather than construction specifically. I think he thought I was very short sighted. He, no matter how many times we explained to him the strategy, we wanted to present ourselves as one of them. Yeah, like the the conservative construction industry, rather than some uh, doe eyed hippies who were <laughs> knitting yogurt, etc. Because uh, there's there's always been plenty of them. Yeah, it, uh, he was very supportive in spite of that endless critique that he would never let go. But yeah, yeah, you could well be onto it. I think if you mix your supplements in with a bit of misogyny, uh, <laughs> like, or you could be away. Misogyny is very popular. And if you can skirt around the various facets of racism, uh, from anti-Semitism, you only have to use the tropes and reference, oh, George Soros. And then just weave those bits into it, allude to China, flirt with converting to Islam in the the Andrew Tate model. You guys could be, you could have a whole new career. (laughs) Well, I haven't got the bandwidth for that, I must say. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, you've worked in some of the big institutions back in uh, days gone by, so you must have been around plenty of racism and anti-Semitism. Never came across it, actually. (laughs) You know, I just live in a bubble, don't I? Well, I certainly have. Um, I mean, when at UCL, I can remember being a... Well, this is corruption. UCL, Adrian, you're quite right. I remember somebody at UCL, probably the one you're thinking of. (laughs) No, no, I was thinking about an Arab in Arab dress coming up to me and asking, but quite completely blatantly... How much it would cost for me to uh, get her uh, into UCL, his daughter. Also, we had that wonderful experience of um, Pat O'Sullivan uh, having two Albanian refugees uh, uh, appear in the Palace of Westminster and the Metropolitan Police at uh, three o'clock in the morning getting Pat O'Sullivan out of bed um, saying, we have... We have um, two of your uh, two of your researchers in uh, in custody in uh, in Bow Street or wherever it was. 
it was it was related to when I was I went to Albania behind the Iron Curtain to give a, give lectures on that energy efficiency, which is completely hilarious, really. And I was taken down to the the, the sea at Durres by one of the lecture staff at the university. And I was shattered at the time. And I, I kept he, he kept saying to me, we're going to show you the Adriatic because your name is Adrian. And I, I was <laughs> going, you know, don't be ridiculous. I want, I want to go back to the hotel. And uh, they gave me a meal of, of quite appalling poverty. I've never had anything quite as bad uh, in a huge hotel with 600 uh, tables. And we were the only people there. And we walked down to the beach, and they said, "Now, I, now we can tell you why we have brought you here." And, and I'm thinking, "Oh Christ, they can shoot me!" <laughs> <laughs> no, they said, "We want you to get us into the UK." Wow! And we've we've brought you here because there's no uh, no chance of it being uh, bugged. And uh, it was those two people who, two or three years later, <laughs> appeared in the Palace of Westminster. Oh no! Much to- <laughs> My gosh! Wow. I mean, the only reason I'm here t- today, basically, is to tell a few stories, because Bill knows all about so EPCs and energy certificates, and I've got some good stories, <laughs> which, <laughs> which are well, vaguely related to energy. Well, this um, is why we invited you both. Like, we were... So, uh, all right, I'll do a little bit of an intro. We're back here with Adrian Lehman and Bill Bordas, uh, returning champions to the podcast and total heads in the industry. Jeff and I were going to do an episode just with Alex today. Sadly, Alex can't make it. He's tied up with some domestic chores. Because of the ongoing discourse around EPCs, like we've done the critique of the the DPEs out of France. We're going to be having a follow-up episode on that uh, with uh, someone... I think at the end of the month, but we saw the article in the Times, which created quite a stir on Twitter. What was it called? Why misleading EPC ratings are a national scandal. We'll drop a link in the show notes, and very much in line with, uh, well, I think Duncan Smith, erstwhile host, was posting it, and I believe Bill, you you posted on LinkedIn about much the same thing. Jeff and I were going to have a conversation about it. Sorry, Jeff. No, that's it. Yeah, uh, we were planning to talk about it anyway, because it's, it's pertinent to uh, an article that we've been working on, which will be for over on and off for a couple of years in the magazine, which will be published in our next issue. Um, and uh, I just saw when Duncan posted this EPC uh, article or a link to it, um, uh, I just noticed Bill commenting um, in response, I think, to Duncan's post. It may have been maybe somebody else. Um, um, and I remembered the first time I ever heard your of your name, uh, Bill specifically, I think it was, um, was probably about. Now, this is just to do with my compared to, to the pair of you, my relative newness uh, to this industry. Um, it was would have been about two thousand and five or something like that. That kind of time from Jay Stewart, is uh, a Canadian. Oh, that's right. We were working on energy labelling. Yeah. Yeah, and Jay was talking about, um, uh, because at the time Ireland was, uh, because of the original Energy Performance of Buildings Directive, which was published in 2002, there was a deadline in place for member states to introduce energy ratings for, for, for buildings by 2006. That's right. Um, so everybody was getting ready for that. Um, and all the talk 
was uh, about, you know, uh, well, people trying to figure out what that would be. And everything was focused, I suppose, and, and ended up being focused on this idea of an asset rating, uh, which is, I guess, a rating where you where you make standardized assumptions about uh, how the asset will be used uh, in terms of temperature, in terms of the kinds of occupancy and so on. Um, and uh, the and occupancy hours, you know, and so on. Um, and, um, and, and Jay was... Uh, the only dissenting voice I was hearing really in Ireland at the time, who was saying, because um, he'd recently moved to Ireland, um, uh, saying there are some really interesting people uh, in the UK working on a proposal uh, for an operational rating rather than an asset rating. Um, and that was you. Um, so, yeah, I, but I'm, I don't know if that's just happenstance, Bill, or did you, would you, were you developing that specifically with the directive in mind? Well, this is a really long story. I don't know whether you want to be told it. Yeah, let, let me start telling it to you. Yes, please. Essentially, in the 80s, I did quite a lot of work on first monitoring the monitoring of energy demonstration projects and then on trying to develop energy benchmarks and case studies of low energy buildings. And we kept finding performance gaps of a factor of two or three. Um, but at the time, it was very bad news and shoot the messenger as far as that went for various reasons, which I could explain, but I won't open up. These, these are all exemplary, notionally exemplary projects, right? Uh, mainly mainly non-domestic, I would guess. Um, they were mainly non-domestic. Um, and. I mean, the interesting thing is, you know, some of the exemplary ones performed rather badly and some performed tolerably well in some aspects, but not necessarily all aspects. You know, people were great about the lighting in the offices, but forgot about the lighting everywhere else and things like that. Right. Um, but there are also some ordinary ones that weren't doing too badly either. Okay. You no, know, because essentially the ordinary ones were, were generally simpler and you know so people knew what to do mm. in fact we did some work on sports centers about the same time and essentially there was a stuff called sash the standard approach to sports halls which turned into standard sports halls and they had a very sophisticated mechanical system so that it you know it heat recovered and it recirculated and it was electronically controlled and all the rest of it but actually, some people had bought built sports halls to very similar plans with basic services. So, you know, want hot water, have a hot water heater. You know, want ventilation in the sports hall, have a fan. You know, want to heat the place, have a boiler. And these tended to be much cheaper to build and much cheaper to run than the sophisticated ones, which nobody could understand. Then towards the end of the 80s, I met Adrian. Well, I'd met him before, but we we started talking to each other and then decided we should work together. And I, I said, it's all very well looking, to, looking at this technical stuff, um, but actually what I find is often the problems are on the human side, you know, on the procurement of the buildings, um, on the um, whole delivery process, and then on the management of the buildings and the understanding of the occupiers after that. So we started working together and, you know, we, we hit pay dirt on some of this in finding how you could by 
having a better process, which was particularly had to have some leader, didn't matter who it was, could be client, could be the facilities manager, could be the designer, could be a nerdy services engineer or advisor. But, you know, somebody had to be focused on what are the outcomes? Is this designed to be manageable or is it all dressed up and nowhere to go? Mm. Then I got a portfolio of work to manage for the building research establishment, which included looking at what we needed to do to benchmark buildings for the forthcoming energy performance of buildings directive. So this was the 2002 one. This was a 1995 one. But that got bogged down in the European Parliament and never got ratified. But what happened when I was monitoring the monitoring of energy demonstration projects, I found people could get things wrong with two years monitoring work that you could actually drive a coach and horses through quite often in half a day on site with a bag of instruments. So we developed the energy assessment and reporting method, TM22, CIPC TM22, which actually allowed you to get a handle on where the energy was being used in a complex building quickly. Mm. So a target of, you know, one to five days rather than one to five years. <laughs> so essentially, we were, and also I developed benchmarking systems. So there's Energy Consumption Guide 19, which was the first one for offices, because the previous ones for industrial buildings of various kinds, which was published in 1989 or written then, published in 1990, which looked at offices and began to go towards, you know, not benchmarking as an office, but benchmarking them in terms of what sort of office it was. So we had four separate types. But by the end of the 90s, we did been able to tailor that. So you could actually benchmark a building on what it did rather than what it was. Mm-hmm. So how many days a week is it in operation? How many hours a year? What is the density of occupation? Does it have a restaurant? Does it have a server room? Blah, 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 blah. So when the European Energy Performance Buildings Directive came along. Um, essentially, as you say, it was all about what turned into EPCs and asset ratings, except there was one clause that said the actual energy performance situation should be taken into account to the extent possible. So we used that to lever out two horizon projects. <laughs> one of which was looking at how this would work to offices Mm. using the infrastructure that we developed in the 90s and you know but taking that out across europe so you know we're in partnership with a half a dozen other countries including with jay and um um, owen lewis in ireland oh yeah and then the second phase sorry that was the first phase the second phase is where jay came in which was when we were extending that from offices to public buildings. Because initially we thought the directive would apply to all non-domestic buildings. Well, yeah, that, we had this, you're talking about the display energy certificate uh, requirement. But, but then, in fact, when it was ratified, it was only initially for public buildings. So we then had to go into the educational sector and the health sector, you know, and offices, of, of course, were still there. And um, so we had sort of four, um, six, six main areas. I remember, Bill, um, I remember at the time um, we went around the houses talking to different member states to try and find out um, 
how different member states are approaching implementing the directive. Oh. And uh, this point about public buildings, um, there was a requirement in the directive to display the energy rating, um, as you know, the display energy certificate, which I think is everything, isn't it? It's all of the metered energy use, not just the, the, uh, the, from memory, I think it's not just the regulated, it's because, uh, of course, how could you, you know? Essentially, um, what the directive said was that you had to have a minimum set, which was heating, hot water, ventilation, cooling, and lighting. Okay. okay. Um, but you could have what you like. That was up to the member states. Okay. But and I remember, that's, I remember the going, paper, that's the paper. What doesn't come through immediately in the audio is that at this point, Adrian pulled up a PDF of Buildings, the Key to Energy Conservation, a book from 1979 published by Reba. It's a text they both made reference to throughout the conversation, and you can find a link to the whole book in the show notes. It's on their website. I mean, to be fair, if you're all into the subject of buildings, their use, and energy efficiency, which I presume you must be to be listening to this podcast, you really should check their website, usablebuildings.co.uk. That too is in the show notes. Yeah, very. Uh, we'll, we'll include this in the show notes. Energy performance of non-domestic buildings closing the credibility gap. Very interesting. The, the point I was getting was that um, um, with the display energy uh, certificates. Can Adrian go to the end of that paper? Yeah, the diagram. But what I was getting at, Bill, was that um. Go to the end certain, of the certain member states. This is what it was all about. Saying okay. you've got asset and an operational, but you look at them through the same lens. Oh, I recall this. So just for just for let the record show um, that we have uh, a, a diagram of uh, an energy rating which has got an A to G scale with uh, with essentially two, uh, two 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 columns to it, an asset rating and an operational rating alongside each other, um, which is a very interesting uh, approach. Now, we ran into three complicating issues about that. Complicating issue one is the directive was ratified, but essentially there was no infrastructure for the nations, the member states, to implement it under subsidiarity. And after about three months, the European Commission woke up to that. And a CEN committee was set up that we participated on to some extent. But it was very much rather bolting the stable door after the horse had, um, you know, bolting the stable door after the horse had gone already. And the problem was that most of the people involved were steeped in modeling and estimation rather than the reality of buildings, and particularly commercial buildings and public buildings, which are much more complicated than houses in terms of their energy uses and variables. Yeah. So most people couldn't get their head around it, whereas we had got our head around it because, you know, we had 15, 20 years experience on doing this. The second thing, so that what you've got is academics who wanted to model. But the other thing is you had industrial players who wanted the system to encourage people to buy stuff rather than tune up their buildings. Yeah. yeah. 
And this is a problem. This is both in Westminster and in Always going to be a problem. <laughs> you know, the policy lobbyists, and essentially, the last thing they wanted was transparency between expectations and outcomes. Now, sadly, um, you know, we were leading the project, or rather, you know, I was part of the team that was leading the project. It was actually managed by, by Verco, that it now is. But we had a problem in the UK. Because in 2002, the building research establishment's privatization was completed. Mm -hmm. But also the Carbon Trust had been set up to look after non-domestic buildings, because essentially the Energy Saving Trust, which had looked after both, that non-domestic stuff got booted into touch by the energy regulators, Claire Spottiswood, who was head of off-gas at the time. So essentially, we had a lacuna for infrastructure for non-domestic buildings. Now, what happened is when BRE was privatized, the benchmarking stuff, which we developed with them for the Energy Efficiency Best Practice Program and the tailored benchmarking, which under, underpinned this operational certificate, was handed over to the Carbon Trust. But the Carbon Trust's remit was to go beyond what was statutorily necessary. And the Carbon Trust argued that because of the Energy Performance of Buildings Directive, it was statutorily necessary for our government to develop the benchmarks. But the government never put any money into developing the benchmarks. So we had to make them up over Christmas in 2007, um, you know, <laughs> on, on SIBSI on Research Fund. And then John Field of SIBSI, my colleagues, I was on sabbatical in the States, actually got consensus from the market for benchmarks for operational ratings as a very, very simple start of a 10. Uh, and those were supposed to evolve as data was collected, but they never did. But what were they supposed to be used for, Bill? What? Who were they for? What were they supposed to be used for? Benchmarks were for, I think it was 29 non-domestic sectors. So essentially, even though they initially started in public buildings, they actually had commercial building benchmarks too. But would this have been used as part of the UK's compliance with the directive? Well, I mean, what what was the fundamental purpose of benchmarking anything if the the mechanisms and systems built around it are primed for inertia or misdirection? The problem is they weren't primed for inertia. But but can I take you back one? Yeah. Because Please. unfortunately, what happened after the two thousand and five election, the new minister. Um, Yvette Cooper decided that she didn't like the idea of having two building ratings. You know, the whole idea was to get rid of European red tape and that sort of thing. So the idea was, you know, the asset rating was for point of sale and the operational rating was to encourage all players involved in the performance of an existing or or a new or an altered building to improve their energy performance year on year. Mm. But she didn't like the idea of that. Mm. And the civil servant said, don't fight this, just go on quietly with your European project and I'll do what I can to get her to change her mind. And 15 months later, she did change her mind because the civil servant had been able to persuade her that for um, non-domestic buildings, it would be much better to have a simple 
measure that was based on real energy use. It would um, inspire people to save real energy and carbon rather than a theoretical one, you know, which was valid for 10 years and, you know, would mean nothing very much. Um, but the other thing, I mean, we'll come on to domestic energy certificates a bit later. So, but the trouble is, by the time that decision was made, our project was nearly complete. And we said, well, we've developed this software under Euro projects, which can underpin this, and you can have it where a charity. And they said, oh, we couldn't do that, where that's anti-competitive. So essentially, new software had to be developed, but also the consultants um, to the ministry were hostile to the idea of reporting asset and operational ratings in the same place. Oh, God. Right. Even though the CEN standard said you could. The CEN standard has a simplified version of, of this prototype I did with Kiel Bernstra in the Netherlands. You know, so even though that was all legally possible, um, the consultants to the ministry said, oh, no, asset and operational ratings are apples and oranges, never the twain shall meet. Did they have a, a rationale for this? Because, like, I'm, I, I'm afraid my conspiracy theory of the rationale <laughs> is the designers didn't want their designs to be evaluated in the cold light. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this and is the, they the, said, the asset rating is done for us to compare options, not for us to predict outcomes. Yeah, it's it's astonishing. I mean, it's absurd, not just astonishing that uh, everyone in such a fundamental industry hates having their homework marked in any way like they, they absolutely appear to resist it i mean i think some changes afoot there are there are needs to but even where it would be beneficial to all parties like yeah not interested let's move on this is the story of our lives really because you know the issue is if you've got performance gaps as too often you do have of two or three then there's no point sweating the small stuff. You know, then we had stupid things in the UK like the Merton Rule, which required buildings to have 10% renewables. But, you know, if you haven't actually tackled the performance gap, the 10% renewables turn into 3% renewables, 5% renewables. And if you'd spent that money on conservation and efficiency, the footprint would be smaller and the, the building would be more likely to work. So, you know... Yeah. The, misplaced priorities of spending money on stuff rather than making things simpler, more efficient and doing them better. There was a, a, a one good consequence of the Merton rule, I, I should say. Um, it led in Ireland to directly led to uh, some local authorities starting to come up with their own version. Uh, and I assisted some of them with this. And we got in Fingal and North Dublin in 2005, 60% um, energy and 60% carbon reduction requirements calculated, admittedly using the national, our version of SAP. So all those concerns still stand. Um, and air tightness testing is a requirement and, and, and then mandatory renewables too. You know? But it was kind of the approach was... Um, to put efficiency first, at least, which still in, involves buying stuff because the fundamental problem, and this is one issue that I've always had with them, um, with our national uh, approach in our in Ireland, and same in the UK, I think, this separation between the Planning Act and the Building Control Act um, means that 
the time you start working on calculating the energy performance of your building is after you've designed it. You know, you've got planning granted. So the shape of the building, the form of it, that's all been decided. You're just trying to make whatever uh, potentially very inefficient form of building, for instance, um, uh, 60% better than it would have been uh, originally. You know, Well, this is the stupid thing because actually, you know, you can using a tailored benchmarking system and reverse engineering SIBCTM22, you can start doing a simple energy model from your build for your building, you know, the day you start work on it. Yeah. So essentially what you're doing is you're putting energy budgets to the various end uses. You're then looking at how you can design the building and specify its systems and controls in order to meet those budgets. And as you know more about what you've done, you can bring that into sharper focus, and then you can make judgments about, you know, whether it's cost-effective or not to meet the stretch target, or whether you better just go for the good practice target or whatever it is. You know, all this can be done, but the industry has been very reluctant to do it. You know, they much prefer either to do nothing or to make it terribly complicated. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting one. Um... So this transparency, which is really important, is something that hasn't hasn't happened. It is a madness that we are twenty years later, and it's just completely appalling. Like I'm looking, I'm looking at this energy certificate. Uh, we'll include a link to the PDF, and I'm comparing it with my experience of, which, sorry to bore people, having moved house recently into a nine thirty semi that's proper cold. Like it would have been this sort of information would have been really useful in terms of knowing what sort of work is going to be required to make it much less cold. Because, you know, that sort of information should affect the asset value like tremendously. But especially in light of what we're going through now in terms of energy prices, it would let me know the scale of work that would be ahead of me, even if it didn't affect the asset price. Because in this overheated market, you know, there are a few things that affect it. The complicating factors here, when you, when you come to, to, to any building, really, but dwellings would be a kind of interesting case in this regard, Dan, is that um, an operational rating, if you had uh, somebody, you know, who was sitting, happy to sit in the dark with the heating off all day um, as the previous occupant, you know, you'd have half nothing uh, consumption. It was just purely based on operational in that way. But I'm sure Bill has very good, Bill Nadine has very good answers to the uh, to this. No, essentially, you know, I've been largely talking non-domestic so far. Yeah. And essentially, what we found with the non-domestic was that under the European Directive and under British Freedom of Information Act, the non-domestic had to declare their NEG use anyway. So essentially, that information could be out there. The commercial people who we were involved in the consultation, were happy to put their information out there if there's a level playing field. So they wanted to know that, you know, it was much better than, I mean, a while ago when there was sort of free-for-all on energy certificates, you know, some people were sticking A ratings on the side of their aeroplanes, for example. <laughs> so you know, what, what they wanted to do is have confidence that the, the, the playing field for benchmarking was reasonably level. And we or particularly john persuaded them that even though the, the initial benchmarks were very rough and ready 
the more the information was collected and went into the database, the more the benchmarks could be bootstrapped by reality. And we also had a strategy where you could augment it by industry understandings, because, you know, as far as a benchmarker might be concerned, uh, catering kitchen was a catering kitchen. But as far as McDonald's was concerned, you know, they might mm-hmm. find certain types of kitchen had different energy performance. And therefore, yeah. it, it made a lot of sense to have, you know, the kitchen with induction hobs or whatever rather than the gas fired one. So essentially, the idea was that you had a fairly rough and ready but simple and cheap thing in the public domain which could be done to start you off. And then that could be augmented by industry insights like the McDonald's kitchen. Yeah. Sibsi type in insights. So well, you know, what are the technical underpinnings for this? You know, what's a reasonable COP for a heat pump if it's properly engineered, etc. You know. I mean, you know, initially on EPCs, I think for district heating systems, they assumed an efficiency of 80%. It may even be 90%. Oh, wow, that's very, most, very, very altruistic. Had, <laughs> m- m- most of the things had an efficiency of less than 50%. Yeah, yeah. So now, you know, about, I think, 2018, the default became 50%, unless you can show that it's different. So on the domestic side, there was a problem. Daily Mail. <laughs> An Englishman's home is his castle. You know, you could not have a declaration of actual performance of a domestic building. So that meant that essentially the asset rating became more important. But also, there was nothing to stop people who wanted to unblinding their information. And interestingly, there was a case study of that at a town called Vaxjur in Sweden. Oh, yeah. yeah. Where they had this system and the information this was about ooh, 2008 or something but they 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 actually had this platform which showed the distribution of energy use in these dwellings and then people would say oh yes you know this is 65 whatever it is gas or whatever um and that they they could light up and then people started keeping down with the joneses how do you get as low as that? Oh, yes, you'll yeah, we'll turn the thermostat down a bit or whatever. So there is a dynamic that you can possibly release. Interestingly, that study seems to have stopped, I think probably because it was a bit frightening to the people who thought they had to sell lots of electronics for people to do it. And in fact, they just did it. Um, but essentially, you have to get these virtuous circles going. And you know, if, if you have these things as a window on performance. But let's just get back to the domestic asset ratings by themselves or the commercial ones for that. I mean, it's been known in academic and uh, and commercial circles for years that these things have a very, very low resolution. Mm. You know, the Better Buildings Partnership, which has been involved in bringing in Neighbours UK, um, you know, looked at this in 2015 or so, and was practically no relationship for the portfolio of their members between actual carbon footprint and EPC grade. There was a slight dip in the A's and B's, often because they had some renewable energy supplies or something subsidizing them to a little bit. But there was also a slight dip in the F's F's and G's as well. Now, part of the reason for the dip in the F's and G's is might be because they might be less stressed buildings. You know, the buildings which 
weren't terribly efficient, also tended to be older ones, which had fewer people in them and less electronic kit and that sort of stuff. So again, there needs to be a finesse in benchmarking, which is mostly ab absent at the moment. But also, I mean, there have been academics looking at this for their MSCs and PhDs for the last 10 years, because I've been peer reviewer for some of them. And it just comes through all the time. You know, this bears very little relationship to actual outcomes. And that's partly maybe because, I mean, it's what's called the pre-bound effect in a paper in building research and information a few years ago, partly because people in buildings that lose, use a lot of heat probably won't want to keep them at 22 degrees. So, you know, there are some things like that, that the assumptions don't work if the building's inefficient because people have ways of coping. But also the physics and modeling doesn't work terribly well either. I mean, certainly I've been involved with quite a lot of work on historic and traditional buildings, um, measuring in situ U values, and on average, they're considerably lower than the book value. Well, that's a good point. Kira Ahern, at, um, is an academic at um, TU Dublin, Technological University of Dublin, published some papers to this effect um, a few years ago as well, indicating that we were assuming uh, far worse insulation levels in historic buildings than they than they tended to achieve, uh, which is effectively what you're saying, right? Most of our listeners will mean will not, will understand with a U value that the lower the better, but it's it, you know uh, it's one of those ones that I think can trip some some people are agreeing to this uh, up a little bit. What you're saying, I guess, supports that. I have um, uh, a there's a report that, that I think is worth if you haven't seen it, I've probably mentioned it to both of you before. Um, uh, which supports what you're saying. If I could share screens as well, I'm reviewing yours. Yeah, you second. should be able to, Jeff. You should be able just no, to just. I, well, I wasn't able to. This is great for a podcast, isn't it? <laughs> I, mean, well, I think I'll see how it comes out. <laughs> yeah, well, just to be doing this to to, to be. Um, uh, hang on a second. Well, while Jeff does that, I think it's it's interesting how much contextual and specific information is lacking from the whole process, which was one of the the aspects that came up in the the thread that Duncan posted. I think it was former guest Stuart Little who mentioned that uh, the EPC, well, this, this report that had been produced by Carbon Laces could well be distorted because uh, energy use was far less in many homes than had been expected within the asset rating. But a lot of the reason for that that lower energy use could well be because of poverty, mm. because people just aren't putting on their heating and they're living with the cold and the mold. And yeah. without that sort of like benchmarking is a great place to start, but benchmarking without but, contextual but, understanding, like. But even if you take that out, you find there's still quite a discrepancy. I mean, University yeah. College London Energy Institute now have access to all the metered data. Mm. And in some, they also have a sort of cohort of smart metered buildings, some of which they also have um, environmental monitoring in. And they do find the relationship between EPC grade and actual energy performance is stronger than it might look at first sight. But it's not all that strong. You know, it still means that the poorly rated ones are actually using considerably less energy than you might expect, even when you compensate for the fact that they may be operating at lower temperatures 
or the air quality is poor or whatever. But still, there's a big discrepancy. Well, I think part of it too, um, and I, from an Irish context, I can say is that if you have an existing building, you go into an existing building as an assessor, uh, and if you don't have uh, documentary evidence for the measures for the windows, for instance, you don't have the right piece of paper for, for the windows. Um, then they don't um, exist. Yeah, yeah. Then you go back to a default. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, so it's punitive in that regard. So that certainly doesn't help. But the one, I, the link I was um, showing here, um, again, we'll include this in the show notes, um, is a graph from the Energy Performance Survey of Irish Housing, which was produced in two thousand and five, and and it was it was commissioned by. SEI, as they were at the time, Sustainable Energy Ireland, oh. Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland, to benchmark the Irish housing stock for the creation of the building energy rating system. The study wasn't published um, until I eventually managed to, to badger it out of SEI in 2011, um, six years later. Um, and uh, it was 150 homes um, taken to be a the, the people who did the work, there were some excellent uh, energy agencies and a, um, and a Dr. Kirk Shanks from, uh, from uh, what is now TU Dublin. Oh, yes. Um, we were in touch um, with him, weren't we, Adrian? Kirk Shanks. Sorry, I was, wasn't expecting a cue then. <laughs> Kirk um, Shanks. <laughs> we, we had communications with him. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was a it was a great piece of work, um, uh, and um, a number of the energy agencies. And uh, it was a non-destructive study, uh, so they, they they couldn't drill holes because as Peter, the late great Peter Keaveney from Galway Energy, energy Agency, who was involved, as he pointed out to SCI at the time, unless you have, unless you're expecting me to go around with two hundred cans of paint in the back of my car, um, I I'm not going to be able to drill holes in yeah. walls, you know. So, um, so what they did was um, they, 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 first of all, they, they were very careful to advertise not to get enthusiasts. Um, so they have a representative sample of the housing stock by location, by age of, of properties, by house type, by tenure of occupancy, uh, and so on. And uh, they looked at two or three years worth of uh, metered energy usage, um, and they used uh, the precursor to to sap and or to, to deepen our the old uh, an amended version of the old heat energy rating method. And the graph I'm showing, they divided in this particular one. It was so interesting. They divided the homes up into four groups: pre 1981, 81 to 90, uh, 91 to 96, and then 97 to 2002, um, and uh, looked at the the calculated rating. Um, and the actual consumption, and, and I believe the uh, the the, uh, the, the, the pre one figure is showing complete alignment. You know, uh, because, it, because I guess it was the benchmark that they used uh, to, to to assess the others on. And what you'll see uh, with 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 each subsequent cohort is that the the calculated rating uh, was showing uh, generally a you know a significant drop. Um, the post nineteen ninety seven uh, cohort. Uh, actually reversed that trend. They were expected to have higher, higher energy consumption because of the types of homes that were being built at that time were, were different. They were more, um, God, what was it again? Was it more, that was when the Celtic Tiger was in full swing. So I guess it was um, uh, more estate houses, you know, so higher per square meter figures. I can't recall. Uh, it was smaller houses and all of that. Um, but the point was that you can see over time a yawning gap emerging um, between uh, the, the calculated and the actual usage, it, uh, it grew as construction output 
increased. And the report concluded that one of the reasons for this may have been comfort taking. Um, people in newer, notionally more energy efficient homes expecting higher comfort. And it may also have been um, uh, declining construction standards as as uh, as construction activity picked up, you know. But yeah, that report is it's full of interesting little insights, uh, including uh, one that was absolutely fascinating. The, the homes, a third of them, the post-1997 cohort, were to be checked for compliance against building regulations. This was the first time in the history of the state that any uh, representative sample of housing had ever been checked for compliance against any parts of building regulations, right? Um, and there were 52 homes that were checked for compliance against Part L, which in Ireland, as in England, is energy performance, Part F, which is ventilation, and Part J, which is heat-producing appliances. And the, the Part L cohort, it was 52 homes inspected in the end, a naked eye assessment, um, again, so no drilling, and uh, only one of the 52 homes complied. The defence that, that that we heard at the time from SEI um, was that um, was that 87% of them were properly insulated and that most of them failed in a technicality. But the 87% properly insulated claim we subsequently found out when we got access to the full report didn't stack up because it was based on the naked eye. So they assumed 100% compliance with floor insulation because they couldn't gain access. They, they could only access walls through electricity boxes um, or, or wall vents, you know. Um, and there was a subset of 20 of those 52 homes which had both air tightness testing and thermal imaging done. Um, and of those 20, 19 of them showed either missing insulation or cold bridging indicating contravention of the, of the regulation. So it was either 87% compliant or essentially compliant, you know, based on the naked eye, or 95% of a subset of those 52 homes non-compliant based on more meaningful analysis. No, so, you, I mean, this is rife. I mean, I used to say in the UK that, you know, the building inspectors don't usually get beyond part B, but then we had Grenfell Fire and they hadn't even got there. Yeah. Um, so, but I mean, also what we found, I mean, it's interesting if you started segmenting the pre-1980s, mm. you might well find that the 60s and 70s were worse and then you know the early part of the 20th century wasn't so bad and, and there's data on that there is data on that on air, in air tightness tests at least there's some data to indicate better air tightness uh in pre-war homes in ireland because um, one, one of the problems has been the move away from wet finishes yeah exactly yeah so what's happened is the the air tightness in the newer ones i mean you know because Spec builders like putting insulating plasterboard on the inside because it's nice and easy, but usually it leaks like a sieve, and it's not very good in terms of summer time overheating either. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, we had a report, Bill, uh, that um, Energy Action, the fuel poverty charity, did uh, in, uh, around 10, 12 years ago or so, where they did 20 homes, mainly around Dublin, um, Externally insulated them under a, these are fuel poor households. Um, they externally insulated them under a pilot phase of a government grant scheme. Um, but unusually, they air tightness tested them before and after the retrofit. Um, and the graph, which I'll pull up, showing um, the, uh, the, the, the wall type, the age of construction, um, and the pre and post air tightness test results. And six of them were built between 1920 and 1940 all kind of ex-corporation, like council houses from North Inner City, Dublin mainly, and the rest 
the other 14 were built between 1960 and 1980. The pre-war cohort averaged less than five cubic meters meters per hour um, on their air tightness. The post-war cohort averaged nine. I think the last three were from yeah. 1980, and they were like 12, 14, and 16, respectively. And it's exactly as you say. I mean, they were, you know, uh, uh, you know, kind of hollow block wall with plasterboard or or empty cavity wall with plasterboard uh, for the for the for the later ones, and they were kind of you know mass rubble or whatever, mass concrete, um, uh, wet plastered for the earlier ones. Right. So thinking about, I mean, the system's a mess. It doesn't work in Ireland, France, or the UK. But people, right, so I'm thinking of, Jeff and I were involved in a private conversation in the week where someone who's undergoing a massive retrofit program amongst a whole bunch of social housing assets, they're trying to work out how to assess the work at all. They're trying to assess the quality of the work. So like the the prospective rating asset rated and they're trying to work out how to assess the operational performance and so this is like uh small units and tower blocks i'm just curious what you guys like you you have so much experience in this field like how should folk approach that knowing the ones who are willing to check their homework how should they be approaching doing a good job? Because everyone's because of the lack of support from institutions, as we've discussed, who don't like best practice in this regard. Everyone has to make it up as they go along. There's, there are a few benchmarks. The benchmarks aren't vetted. I mean, someone in that situation, how should they? How should they begin to approach what they're doing? Well, the best place to begin is to understand where you are when you set out. And that's the end of part one. As per the setup, we've got more forward-focused chat in the second half. And at that point, Adrian has a good bit more to say. That'll be up for you on Thursday. Once again, toxic positivity, five stars. Please, someone, please review it, written review, whatever. And if you don't do that, share it. Um, Yeah, that's it. Thanks for listening. See you Thursday.